Amen. Man, let's eat. Mmm, that's good. How you guys doing this morning? Good. Good to see you. Um, we have a friend named Marcy, and Marcy makes really good guacamole. I mean, it's really good. Whenever our families get together, she will, you know, usually make up this big bucket of the stuff and bring it over, and I usually eat about half of it because it's just absolutely amazing. And she's one of those people that's, like, annoying because she could cook without a recipe at all. And how many of you can do that? You can cook. You don't need a recipe. You can just, and, uh, it's, like, intuitive to you. That's how Marcy is. So she'll mix up this stuff, and it's just absolutely amazing. I am not that way. I need instructions. I need an exact manual. Here's the measurements. Here's everything step by step if I'm going to cook something like that. And so uh, last summer, 2016, summer 2016, the church um, allowed me to have a three-month sabbatical. It was a time for me to pray and study and seek God. And so um, I decided over my sabbatical, I'm going to learn how to make guacamole like Marcy. I'm just going to, I'm going to learn how to do this. And so what I did is I, I texted Marcy and I said, uh, the question on the text said, what do you put in your guacamole to make it taste so good? And she responded back with one word. The word was pot. <laughs> and if you know Marcy, you might wonder if that was true. Thankfully, she was kidding. She was just joking. So I kept pestering her. I kept bothering her. And finally, she came back with, okay, here it is. And she gave me the ingredients, and she told me how she makes guacamole. And so I spent the summer of 2016 making guacamole. I'm not kidding you. I probably made it like 20 times for our family. Just worked at it, worked at it, and practiced. I was very busy for our Lord. And, um, and I actually got pretty good at it. I got to where, like, making guacamole is kind of my thing now. I'm, I'm, I'm good at doing this. And so I learned a few things about what makes for good guacamole, and I'd like to share them with you right now. <laughs> Um, first of all, it's all about the ingredients. Uh, if you're going to make really good guacamole, you have to start with ingredients that are fresh and whole. Everything that's in guacamole is natural, pretty much in the state that it comes from when you harvest it from the ground. Literally, it's not processed. It doesn't go through any kind of, uh, you know, work to get it in its form. It's pretty much in the form it is. So ripe avocados, um, not too ripe though. You want them to be a little bit firm still. And then uh, lemon, not like lemon juice from a can, but um, like actual lemon that you squeeze fresh. Uh, red onions, you have to be careful with these. A few of the batches I got, well, way too much of this. Um, red onions, garlic cloves, and you mince those up. And then some people like a little more tomato. Some people like a little bit less tomato, just kind of depending on what you like. But it's all about these ingredients and selecting the right ingredients. The second thing that makes for great guacamole is it's, there's an art to combination and consistency. And so you leave the, the avocado a little bit chunky. You don't want to absolutely just pulverize it. And, and when you get it right, basically you should be able to taste everything that's in it without one thing overwhelming all the others. You know what I mean? So there's kind of this art to it, my friends. It takes a lot of work, but when you get it right, mm, man, is it good. Uh, I also brought with me this morning, uh, this is a corn dog from the gas station. Speedway, literally, right here on Plainfield Avenue. I, uh, I harvested this bad boy from the, uh, from the rollers. You know what I'm talking about? I literally plucked this right off the rollers. Mm. And it, uh, this is, well, it was hot at the time when I got it. Uh, it was convenient. It was quick. Uh, it was cheap. I think it cost me $1.59, and I believe I got over, you know, I, I believe that was too much to pay for it. 
versus like how much I paid for all these ingredients. And the other thing about it is it's extremely processed, right? I mean, there's probably like 18 steps of processing that happened from the time that the ingredients of this got harvested to the ground until they found themselves in this form. Uh, so a huge amount of process that went into making this corn dog what it is. But because it's so processed, it is also consistent. It, they can make it in this form every single time because they perfected their process, and so you can count on it. In fact, the reason we like hot corn dogs is because they're quick, convenient, easy, and you can count on it. It's going to be the same thing. It'll never let you down. It's going to be the exact same experience every single time for you. Um, now, uh, I, I brought both of these things because we're starting a new series uh, today. And so the, the reality is both of these things, a corn dog and fresh, really good guacamole, uh, both of these things will satisfy your hunger urge, right? You can eat both of these things, and both of them will satisfy your hunger urge. It's just one of these things is very healthy and life-giving and uh, fresh and whole, and the other one is extremely unhealthy for you. Uh, corn dogs, if you eat enough of these, you will die sooner, okay? Your life will definitely be shorter. That is guaranteed. And so the series we're starting today is called Netflix and Chill. And so we're starting this series because we want to talk about sexuality and our culture. And so we're going to be talking for the next four weeks about the messages that our culture gives us about sex and the messages that God wants for us when it comes to sexuality. And um, just so you know, the, the phrase Netflix and chill refers to sex, okay? So parents, if you ask your teenager what they're going to be doing on their date and they say, we're just going to watch Netflix and chill, that's not really what they're going to be doing, Okay. So that, this series has already helped some people right off the bat with that. Um, so this series is all about sexuality, all about what God wants for us when it comes to sex. And so um, if I could, I, I'll just begin this way. Sex, God's way, in a great marriage is a lot like making guacamole. <laughs> it can be fresh. It can be life-giving. It can be healthy. Uh, and even after 19 years of marriage, it can just keep getting better and better and better. Take my word for it. Some of you who are like 20 years old, you're like, no way, that couldn't possibly be true. And I know that because when I was 20, I thought the same thing. I was like, no way, that could ever be true. Trust me, it can still be fresh and it can still be great and it can just keep getting better and better uh, with the same person over 19 years of marriage. But sex also uh, can be like this corn dog. And much what our culture did with the corn dog, our culture has also done with sex. Uh, our culture has created forms of sex that you can get it in now that are convenient, uh, quick, um, processed, highly processed. But because it's so processed, it's consistent. You can, it'll be there for you. You can get it in the same form every single time, and it won't let you down. And it's also extremely toxic for you and unhealthy. And if you continue to eat it, it's going to shorten your lifespan. Um, so to be really specific on what we're talking about, when we talk about the corn dog, I would just say uh, examples, pornography, um, one night stands, sex trafficking, which by the way is a huge problem in Grand Rapids. Did you know that? Um, I would say premarital sex, and in, in underneath premarital sex, I would include sharing nude pics and sexting. So sex acts that can happen through a video screen. And then prostitution as well. These are just some examples of the corndog version of sex. And, and so uh, here's what I want to say this morning as, as we start out. Many of you in this room are really, really used to eating corn dogs, metaphorically speaking. 
uh, you're used to satisfying your hunger urge with corn dogs, and you eat a lot of corn dogs. In fact, you've, ate, you've eaten so many corn dogs that you've kind of developed a taste for corn dogs, so much to the point where the idea of eating some nice, fresh, whole, healthy guacamole doesn't even sound that appealing to you. It doesn't even sound that great to you. So here's what I want to say to you, if that's you. Um, my goal with this series is not to guilt you. It's not to bring a bunch of shame and a bunch of condemnation to you. Um, and a lot of times what happens in the church when we talk about sex, well, actually, we just don't talk about sex usually in the church. That's, that's usually how it works. But whenever we do happen to talk about sex, a lot of times what we talk about is what, you know, God wants to keep us from when it comes to sex. And so it's about shame, it's about condemnation, and it's about what God wants to keep us from. I would much rather, my goal in this series is to talk to you about what God wants to keep you for. Because God has some great things for you. Sex is something God created. He called it good. And it's supposed to be something that blesses our lives. It's supposed to be something that's life-giving and healthy to us. And so the goal is not shame. It's not guilt. It's, I want to talk in this series about what God wants to keep you for rather than what God wants to keep you from. Does that make sense? Okay, awesome. So what we're going to do to kind of start us off and get us going is I want to just begin at where, the, where sex first finds itself in the Bible. So we're going to look at sex when it first appears, when it was still fresh and whole and unspoiled, just kind of in the, in the original condition that God created it to be in. And so we're going to go all the way to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 2. God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the first two human beings to experience relationship and sexuality in this utopia, this garden where everything is the way that God designed it to be. And Genesis 2, 24 is where we first see this idea of marriage and sexuality. It says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. It's the first instance of marriage and of sexuality in the Bible. And then it says, The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So the man and his wife were both what? Awesome. I just wanted to make you say naked in church. That was just what I wanted to do. Um, isn't it weird how we feel weird about even saying that word in church? Like, oh my gosh, Adam and Eve, they weren't ashamed of it at all. Not only were they saying it, they were, they were living it, right? They were just naked and they felt no shame. And so the first a picture that we get of what sex was when God designed it and created it originally in the Bible is it's intimacy before shame. It's this picture of intimacy between God and people and, and people and each other before there was any kind of instance of shame associated with it. So what we see with the way God created sex was that God created a person for sexuality. He created a time in the context of marriage, and he created a relationship, specifically a man and a woman, um, for sexuality. Uh, so what I want to kind of explore then is what our culture tells us about sex. And so I would say this, the distortion our culture sells is that sex is a product that we can consume in any form we like. M much like the corn dog, um, what our culture has done with sex is it's basically processed sex and turned it into a form uh, like a product that we can consume. As Americans, we see ourselves as consumers first. That's how we view ourselves. We're consumers. And so sex can become a product that can be consumed and it can basically be in any form we like. And oftentimes what we get it in is this quick, convenient, processed form that's also been twisted in some way. Um, so what happens is if you go forward in the Bible, so take from Genesis 2 where you see sex as God originally created it, 
and you go forward in the Bible, where we're going to go this morning is we're going to go to the seventh book in the Bible. So Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Judges is where we're going, and Judges is the seventh book in the Bible. And what you see is as sin enters the world, as brokenness enters the world and, and relationships break apart, sexuality actually changes and morphs and gets distorted, um, even for God's people. And so um, we're going to go, Judges 17, verse 6, sets up a story. This verse sets up a story that we're going to look at um, this morning together. And Judges 17, 6, describing um, the nation of Israel, says this, In those days, Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. That's the descriptor. In those days, Israel had no king. So there was no sense of moral authority at all pointing the way. And so everybody basically did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Um, and, and if there could be a great, you know, descriptor for sexual expression in our culture today, I think it would be that. There's no real moral authority. And so basically, people just should be able to do whatever they want in their own eyes. Express your se yourself sexually however makes sense to you. And whatever you think it should be for you, that, that's fine. That's, in many ways, that's a similar statement to what our day is like. And so in Judges 19, that verse sets up this story in Judges 19 we're going to look at. And the title of the story is, The Levite and His Concubine. <laughs> How's that for a title of a story? Seriously, if you go in your Bible, that's probably the heading in Judges 19 where we get to this story. The Levite and His Concubine. So this story is about an Israelite. It's one of God's chosen holy people in the land of Israel. Now Israel was divided up at this time in history into 12 tribes. And one of those tribes was the tribe of Levi. So this was a Levi. He's an Israelite from the tribe of Levi. Now what you need to know about the Levites is that the Levites were the priestly tribe of Israel. So they were the ones that oversaw the priesthood. And that, that's where this Levite is coming from. He is part of the priestly tribe. And the idea that a Levite of the priestly tribe in Israel would have a concubine is absolutely unheard of. The law actually prohibits that. And so right away when you see it's the Levite and his concubine, there's all kinds of problems with this story right off the bat. They're, they're already we're way off track of what God called his people to be. And so here's how this story goes. Basically, the, the Levite has this concubine. If you could go to that map, this is the nation of Israel at this time. And so the Levite and his concubine lived in the, the mountain country of Ephraim, up there kind of toward the north. And so this concubine, she leaves, she runs away from her husband, and she becomes sexually unfaithful to him. And she goes all the way down to Jerusalem. In the story, it actually calls it Jebus, but at, that's, at the time, that's what it was called. But it's actually uh, Jerusalem is where she goes to. And so what happens is the Levite leaves the hill country of Ephraim. He goes all the way down to Jerusalem to collect her. And so he gets her, and he's bringing her back to their home in Ephraim. And so on the way back, they stop for the night in um, the tribe of Benjamin. See the, the red there? The town Gibeah is where they stop. They stop in the, in the town of Gibeah. Now, this is an Israelite town, part of God's chosen people. It's a holy city in, within the tribe of Benjamin. And they stop for the night, and there's an old man who takes them into his house. And that's where we pick up the story. Verse 22 says, While they were enjoying themselves, a crowd of troublemakers from the town surrounded the house. They began beating at the door and shouting to the old man, Bring out the man who is staying with you so we can have sex with him. The old man stepped outside to talk to them. No, my brothers, don't do such an evil thing. For this man is a guest in my house, and such a thing would be shameful. 
Here, take my virgin daughter and this man's concubine. I will bring them out to you and you can abuse them and do whatever you like. But don't do such a shameful thing to this man. This is how distorted sexuality had become. That The answer this guy thinks of how to solve this situation is I'll send my virgin daughter and this man's concubine out to be abused. But they wouldn't listen to him. So the Levite took hold of his concubine and pushed her out the door. So imagine, she doesn't want to go. He grabs her and he's just shoving her out the door. And she's fighting, trying to, trying to stop him from doing that. The men of the town abused her all night, taking turns raping her until morning. Finally, at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman returned to the house where her husband was staying. She collapsed at the door of the house and she lay there until it was light. When her husband opened the door to leave, there lay his concubine with her hands on the threshold. He said, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. So he put her body on his donkey and and took her home. When he got home, he took a knife and cut his concubine's body into 12 pieces. Then he sent one piece to each tribe throughout all the territory of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, such a horrible crime has not been committed in all the time since Israel left Egypt. Think about it. What are we going to do? Who is going to speak up? This is this disgusting story of this depraved, violent sexual act uh, that's committed on these people. Now, Now, here's what I want you to see in this story. This is what I want you to zero in on. This was a story about Israel. The book of Judges, the story we're in, this is a story about God's holy chosen people who were set apart to be a light to all the rest of the nations. Now, what's interesting about this story, it's in Judges 19, but this story in Judges 19 is actually a mirror image of another story that you find in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. It's in actually Genesis 19, which is kind of crazy that it's, it's Judges 19 and Genesis 19. Now, in Genesis 19, you find the story of two pagan cities. They weren't Israelite cities. They were pagan cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. So in the story in Genesis 19, Abram, the father of the nation of Israel, stays uh, in these pagan cities with his cousin Lot, and and the, the cities are Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happens is exactly what happens in the story in Judges 19. So what I want you to see is this. The question becomes, why did the writer in Judges 19 include this story? Why did he think it was important to include this story? What the writer in Judges 19 does is he literally takes the story in, Judges, or in Genesis 19 of Sodom and Gomorrah. He sets it here, and he literally, line by line, tells the exact same story. He literally tells the story in the same format, same details, same uh, sequence, same words even in the original Hebrew that, that, that he used. It's a mirror image of Genesis 19. Why in the world would the writer of Judges include this story, and why would he purposely try to make it exactly like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Here's the reason why. The writer of Judges wants us to know that by this time in the story of the nation of Israel, God's holy, chosen, set-apart people had basically become undistinguishable from the pagans from the pagan cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Basically, they had drifted so far when it came to their sexual ethic that they they were basically exactly the same. There was no distinguishable difference between God's holy people and the pagans in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the sexual ethic was there was no king, 
There's no moral authority. So everybody can basically just do whatever makes sense to them. And when you live in a culture where there is no moral authority and everyone basically expresses themselves sexually in whatever way seems best to them, the drift of that culture is not upward toward a higher sexual ethic. The drift of that culture is always downward toward depravity, toward violence, towards expressions of sexuality that are life-taking, not life-giving. So this story ends with this Levite. He does something. He, he literally cuts up his concubine. He cuts up her body into 12 pieces. It's disgusting. And he sends them out to the nation of Israel. He sends them out to all the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and basically what he's doing here is he's saying, wake up. We need to realize what we've become as a people. And he sends this out uh, to all these people. It's basically the last lines of that text say, think about it. The people, you know, as they, as they begin to hear this story and these body parts are coming in, they, they say, think about it. What are we going to do? Who is going to speak up? Who is going to speak up? This is God's holy people. It's a call out to God's holy people. Who's going to speak up? What are we going to do about it? And I would pose the same question to us today, to the church today. Who's going to speak up? What are we going to do about this? How, how in the world should we speak up as the church? And by the way, people are speaking up in our culture about sexuality and the sexual ethic. Um, some of you have maybe uh, become familiar with this. Uh, hashtag me too. How many of you know what this is? Raise your hand if you know what it is. Okay, more of you in this hour than the first hour. For those of you who don't know, this is um, something that's gone viral online over the last month or so. Uh, women are using the hashtag me too on social media to basically stand up and speak out and say, uh, me too, I've been sexually harassed or sexually assaulted. And so women are using this hashtag to, to basically speak up and say, this is not okay that women are treated this way. This is not okay that this happens. Statistics say one in four women have been sexually assaulted at some point in their life. And what's happening, if, you, if you've been paying attention, you know it's like they're calling people out. Celebrities are being called out. People are, you know, men in power are being called to account by this. This hashtag Me Too thing is sweeping across of women speaking out. This, you know what this is? This is cutting up 12 pieces of a concubine and sending it out to all the nation, to all the tribes of Israel and saying, wake up. Wake up. What are we going to do? Who's going to speak up? But we live in a culture where I think it's, we as the church, we need to speak up and we need to talk about sexuality and we need to talk about uh, what happens when people are degraded and, and what happens when sex uh, becomes processed and put into a form that's life-taking and, and, and no one's saying anything. And so here's the question. I want to talk today about how can the church speak up? Because what happens a lot of times for us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, a lot of times when, when, we, when we say, oh yeah, I think I should speak up, we should say something about this, but it's like, man, I don't I don't want to, the backlash sometimes and the vitriol that comes when, uh, as Christians, we speak up and we say things can, can oftentimes be really intimidating. And so for a lot of us, we just kind of wonder, how in the world can we speak up? So what I want to do today, and the time we have remaining, is I want to give you three things um, for, for you to do and when it comes to speaking up about sexuality. So if you are trying to figure out, how do I talk to my kids about sexuality? How do I talk to my kids about that? Three things okay, to kind of lead you through a discussion with your kids when it comes to sexuality. If you're trying to figure out how do I talk to my neighbors, how do I talk to my coworkers, 
people who are different than me three things, okay? I think any discussion about sexuality as the church, we need to, we need to go uh, with these three things. Um, if you're trying to figure out how in the world do I talk online, how, how in the world do I enter into that world, three things, okay? So you can write these down if you want. I, I think any conversation about sexuality, when the church is trying to speak up, we have to start with Jesus. That's the first thing. We've always got to start with Jesus. A lot of times people start with, what's a biblical marriage? And they talk about biblical marriage. I actually don't like the term biblical marriage um, because there were guys in the Bible who had 700 wives and concubines. It's in the Bible, right? So there, it must be a biblical marriage. We just read a story that was completely depraved. I mean, the Bible is full of sexual brokenness. And so the idea of what's a biblical marriage, that can become a really convoluted thing. But as followers of Jesus, any conversation about sexuality that we have, I think needs to begin with Jesus. And just so, so we're clear, um, Frontline is a church. Our entire mission, what we're trying to do is help people find Jesus and know who Jesus is and be redeemed by him. And then it's about helping people imitate Jesus with their lives. All of us are on this journey. Discipleship is learning to imitate Jesus with your life and follow after him. That's what we're doing. And so I think any conversation, we have to start with Jesus. And Jesus had the opportunity to speak up about sex and move the culture forward and enlighten us with a new sexual ethic. He had the opportunity to do this. It's actually, um, the context is that some Pharisees and teachers of the law were asking Jesus questions about marriage and sexuality and divorce. And uh, you can find it in Matthew chapter 19. There's also a parallel in the Gospel of Luke. But we're going to look at Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 19, Jesus responds by saying, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now that passage should sound very familiar to you, right? Because it's the passage from Genesis 2. that Jesus is quoting the passage from Genesis 2 that we started out this sermon with. And so Jesus, when he's given the opportunity to define sexuality, to be progressive, to move things forward a little bit, to say, well, you know, that was then, the Old Testament, that was kind of crazy, but, you know, times have changed and rules are a little different. And when Jesus has the opportunity to be progressive and move things forward, Jesus points all the way back to Genesis 2, and he says, that's the picture and the plan that God has for sexuality and marriage. It's one man, one woman, and sex only in the context of marriage. And divorce is not something that God wants his people to participate in. That's what Jesus points to. He points all the way backwards to the beginning. And that's what he says. Uh, that's what he says is the sexual ethic. So if the question is, what's the marriage that Jesus endorsed? Um, it's very clear to me that Jesus endorsed the picture of Genesis from the beginning. That sex was just for a man and a woman in the context of marriage. That's, that's not in dispute at all for me. It's very clear. Uh, by the way, Jesus did not do the same thing with divorce. Sometimes the question that people ask is, uh, why is it that you say gay people can't get married, but then you let people get divorced and get remarried in the church? And that's a fair question. I think that's a very fair question. And the reason is, that, um, because while Jesus never affirmed divorce, while he never said that divorce was okay, uh, Jesus and Paul both in the New Testament actually did make allowances for divorce. 
So this past summer, we studied the Sermon on the Mount, and we, we looked at it. Matthew 5, Jesus says, you shouldn't get divorced, but in the case where there's been adultery, where there's been marital unfaithfulness and sexual adultery, divorce is allowed. And Jesus makes an allowance for divorce. Paul comes along in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7, he says the same thing. Divorce uh, is not something that God wants, but in the case where you have an unbelieving spouse and they want to leave, you can, you can grant them a divorce. And he makes an allowance for divorce. And so in a sense, Jesus kind of, he does kind of become progressive with divorce. He does kind of move things forward a little bit, but he does not do that with sexuality and marriage. He doesn't do the same thing. There are no allowances or instances in the New Testament anywhere from Jesus or from Paul where they say, you know, basically sex should just be a man and a woman and sex should only be in the context of marriage, except there are these certain circumstances. There are allowances where it's okay for it to be this way. Those just don't exist. Those allowances don't exist. Jesus points backward when he's given the opportunity to talk about sex. Now, um, hang with me. Some of you right now are ready to just throw a rock at my head and walk out the door. Hold on. Um, because this is just the beginning of the conversation. I think any conversation, though, about sexuality and marriage has to begin with Jesus. But then from there, we have to keep imitating Jesus And the second part of any conversation about sexuality, I think we've got to remember that people are way more important than issues. Uh, These aren't important issues we're talking about. These are important people we're talking about. And Jesus, if we're going to be imitators of Jesus, Jesus did not hide behind issues and refuse to deal with people. Jesus ran toward people, no matter what their view on the issues were. I really believe the church needs to decide, in the era we're living in, in the culture that we're living in right now, I think the church needs to decide whether we're going to be a place where people hide behind issues from other people, basically hide from people behind issues, or whether we're people who do what Jesus did and we run toward people who are sexually broken. And so uh, there's three things I want to say this morning to gay people. If you're here this morning and you're gay, Uh, I want to say this, uh, three things I want to say to people who, if you're living outside in any way the sexual ethic that Jesus described of sex within the context of marriage between a man and a woman, first thing I want you to hear is that you matter to God. Second thing I want you to hear is that you matter to this church, to Frontline. And the third thing I want you to hear is that you matter to me personally. And, And I think Jesus cared way more about people and way more than he cared about the issue itself. And you see this exemplified again and again in the Gospels. I think it's really important for you guys to know something. Uh, And and I don't think we've ever shared this up front publicly, but I want to take a moment to do it. You may not have known this, but at Frontline, we have gay people who attend who are living uh, a celibate life because they have embraced Jesus' sexual ethic as taught in scripture, and they're trying to follow Jesus and imitate him with their lives, and so they've chose celibacy. By the way, Jesus was celibate as well, and yet if you were to talk to them, they would still identify and say, but I'm gay. That's what I am. Uh, you should know we have couples who have attended Frontline um, who they're married to someone of the opposite sex. Sometimes that's called a mixed orientation marriage, um, where they've even had children together with a member of the opposite sex, and they've chosen to, to live out Uh, a Christian sexual ethic in their marriage, and yet they would still identify and say, but I'm gay. I'm gay. 
Um, we also have couples that have come together as, as, an, as an act of an affair, and they blew up their marriages and had an affair together and then went through a process and got married and are part of our church right now. And if they were here right here on the stage, this one couple I'm thinking of in particular, they would say, don't do what we did. What we did cost so much hurt and pain. And in fact, if we would have just invested in our marriages as much as we were investing in that affair, the affair would have never happened and we would have been fine. But God is a God of grace who redeems people. God is a God of grace who meets us where we are and draws people to himself. So my prayer for you is not that God will make you straight. My prayer for you is that God will make you holy and that he will make you more like Jesus. By the way, that's the same prayer I pray for everybody. That God will make you holy and that God will make you more like Jesus. That, that I feel like that's the conversation we need to have. And now, um, if I could, I want to talk to straight people for a minute who maybe you're in a, in a traditional marriage and maybe right now you're saying, yeah, but we need to speak truth. We need to speak truth. And I agree, 100%, we do. But the way we do that matters. We can't speak truth in a way that's hateful, in a way that, that condemns, because that's just not what Jesus did. And so any conversation about sexuality, again, I think we need to start with Jesus and we need to be clear on what Jesus taught about it. Second, we need to um, value people way more than issues. And then thirdly, I would say we need to learn the difference between acceptance and affirmation. I think we need to learn there's a difference between acceptance and affirmation. This is huge. Jesus never had the fear that by accepting someone in, a, in friendship and in relationship that he was somehow affirming their life choices. Jesus just never had that fear. When you read the Gospels, he, he just didn't go around afraid that, oh, no, if I accept this person, if I'm in a relationship, then somehow I've affirmed their life choices. In fact, so much to the point where um, Jesus had so associated himself with drunks and gluttons and tax collectors and sexually broken people and sinners that the religious folks of Jesus' time started to give Jesus a nickname, and they started to, to call him by a specific nickname, and it became the name that Jesus was known for. You can find it in Matthew 11. You know what the nickname that everybody began to have for Jesus was? Friend of sinners. That's how Jesus was known. That, that, that was the nickname for him. That Jesus, he's a friend of sinners. Listen to me very closely. Church, frontline, Christians. Until we are being accused of being far too chummy with sexually broken people, we are not imitating Jesus yet. Do you get that? Until the world is accusing Christians of being what Jesus was, a friend of sinners, we are not imitating Jesus yet. If you haven't noticed, the, the world right now is accusing Christians of being a lot of things. There's all kinds of vitriol and all kinds of accusations about Christians. But one thing we as the church are not being accused of is being a friend of sinners. People don't accuse us of that very often. And so my prayer for you, uh, whatever place that you're in, my, whatever sexually broken situation you may find yourself in, my prayer for you is that you will encounter Jesus in this series and that you will encounter Jesus the same way I have encountered him. 
He is a friend of sinners. Thank God he is a friend of sinners. From one sinner to another, from one sexually broken person to another, Jesus is a friend of sinners. That's what he is. And so um, that's where we're going next week. Next week, I want to pick up right here where we left off. And we're going to talk about Jesus, the friend of sinners. And I want to talk about uh, how God wants to heal us from our own sexual past, from our own sexual brokenness. Um, And I'm going to share a little bit from my own life story. I'm going to share a little bit of the healing that I found in Jesus and and some of what God has done in my family. Uh, And I want you to hear, I'm not doing that because it's fun for me or because it's easy. I'm doing it because I believe God wants to set some people free. And I've been set free. And and I'm I'm here to tell you as one sinner to another, he is a friend of sinners. And there is wholeness and there is healing that you know not of, that he wants you to know of. So that's where we're going next week. And so if I could, I'd love to just uh, close us in a prayer and um, I'll give a benediction at the end, but we're going to stand and we're going to sing after I pray. And, we're, and all this morning, I don't know if you've noticed, all this morning we're, we're singing about grace. We're just singing about who Jesus is. And so um, let's just begin, end with a prayer here. Lord Jesus, uh, just thank you that you are a friend of sinners. God, may we encounter you the way that you truly are. Um, not as a, a, a God who hid behind issues so he didn't have to deal with people. Not a God who only talked about condemnation and shame and guilt. But a God who so closely associated himself with brokenness and sexually broken people that he was called a friend of sinners. God, may we encounter you in that way. And may we imitate you in that. So God, I just pray across this room for any conversations that we're going to be in in the church. God, would you help us to start with you and help us to be unashamed about what you taught about sexuality and not to be and not to step back from that. But God, help us to be people who value people and run toward people above issues and help us to be people who know the difference between acceptance and affirmation and who would see ourselves as uh, friends of sinners. Transform us, God. Set us free from our own brokenness. Set us free from the ways that we've maybe bought into distortion. And God, we want to be people who are set free to follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.